Flip with me, if you would, to Numbers chapter 25. We're continuing our study straight through the Bible. And uh, as you remember, we started in the book of Genesis, and we are just motoring our way through. And last week, Jeremy got up, and we went over Numbers chapter 18. And he talked about some of the duties of the Levites, or the priests. And since we are all a royal priesthood, we saw how all of this applies to our life. And really, the, the central theme of, of last week's chapter, you know, as we sort of wrapped it up, was that we need to, as Christians, live in community. We need to live in community. And one of the ways that that plays out is through discipleship. Discipleship is so crucial, and that was one of the things that I wanted us to really take away from last week, is that we need to be discipling. We need to be discipling people. Um, after that, in chapter 19, if you didn't get a chance to read along, there are quite a few laws for purification. God is once again sort of reminding Israel about all these laws that he has given them. Why? Because they're starting to come to the end of their wilderness wanderings. I know it blew by so fast, but we've been in the wilderness with Israel for going on about 25, 30 years at this point. And so they're coming very close to the end of their wilderness wanderings. In chapter 20, very shortly, we have a recounting, uh, a recounting of the death of Miriam. Now, Miriam was Moses' sister, and it's dealt with very shortly before we get into one of really the, the central stories of the Exodus, one of the central stories of the wilderness wanderings. And that's Moses, who... What happens? The people come to Moses and they grumble, they complain. Why? Because that's what this whole book's about, grumbling and complaining. That's pretty much all Israel does throughout this entire book. And so they come to Moses grumbling and complaining that there's no water for them. There's no pomegranates, there's no melons, there's nothing good to eat, and there's no water to drink. Why did you lead us into this stinking wilderness? And so what does God tell Moses to do? God tells Moses, hey, you remember that rock? that I told you to go to and to, to strike, go to the rock and in front of all the people of Israel, speak to it, that its water might pour forth. And so Moses goes to the rock, and he gathers all the people before him, and he strikes the rock. And his attitude was, since you people do nothing but grumble and complain, look, I'm going to hit the rock again, because I'm ticked and God's ticked, just like he was almost 25 years ago when we did this before. And uh, so Moses strikes the rock and water pours forth. But God tells Moses there in chapter 20, he says, the Lord said to Moses in verse 12, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land I have given them. God tells Moses, because you misrepresented me and you portrayed me to be angry with them when I wasn't, you made me out to be upset and angry. And I wasn't. I was just ready to provide for their needs. But because you misrepresented me to the people, you are not going to walk into the promised land. You're not going in, Moses. After this, um, Israel, like I said, is on their way back toward the promised land. They try to go through Edom, but Edom refuses. Uh, There also in chapter 20, we have the death of Moses' other sibling, his brother Aaron, uh, his older brother. So Aaron and Miriam have now died. Uh, In chapter 21, we have another really cool account of scripture. If you didn't read it, I encourage you to do so. There's really great pictures that are happening there in chapter 21 as the children of Israel that what do we find them doing again grumbling complaining that's right that's again that's pretty much all they do in this entire book if if I were to ask you what does Israel do it's grumble and complain it's sort of like what does what sound does the cow make you know that little uh, children's book, you know, moo, what sound does the doggy make? What sound does Israel make? Well, complaining and grumbling. That's pretty much all they do throughout the entire book of Numbers. And so we find them again grumbling in chapter 21. And so uh, they're grumbling there in, in chapter 21. Uh, there's no food, there's no water. And so the Lord sent 
serpents into the camp of Israel, and they bit all these people, all the people of Israel who were complaining. And as they're crying out to God uh, after complaining, God tells Moses to take a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and lift it up. And everyone who looks at the bronze serpent will be healed. Why is this important? Jesus tells us that it's a picture of him. Jesus says that just as when Moses put the bronze serpent on the pole and lifted it up for all of Israel to see and they were healed, so I will be lifted up and all who look to me will be healed. Really cool story, really great thing that happens there in chapter 21. We have uh, two different kings, Sihon and Og. Two different groups of people that are uh, defeated by Israel again as they're on their way back toward the promised land. And so as a result, Balak, the king of Moab, and the king of Midian sort of get together and they decide, well, Israel's coming. And 40 years ago, they got their butts handed to them. But this time, it's not looking that way. They're starting to take people out. And so we need to sort of get together and figure out how we're going to take out Israel. Because we're a little bit worried for our lives, and we're a little bit worried for, well, our kingdoms. Um, Israel's taken out our buddies, and, and we need to band together. We need to figure something out. And so Balak summons Balaam, who is a prophet of the Lord. And he summons Balaam, and he tells Balaam, uh, if you, I'll, I'll pay you a ridiculous sum of money if you'll curse Israel. Uh, I'll, I'll pay you handsomely if you'll only curse the people of Israel. And so Balaam, uh, you know the story if you didn't read. Uh, Balaam prays about it, said, declines the offer. The king sends more men. Balaam thinks about it, prays about it, and decides to just go And on his way, he's riding his donkey, and his donkey sees this angel in the road with its sword drawn about to kill Balaam. And so the donkey stops and and won't go, and Balaam beats the donkey, and the the donkey continues on. Later down the road, um, there's the angel again, and so the donkey is sort of like pushing Balaam into the wall uh, to avoid this angel with its sword drawn about ready to kill Balaam because Balaam's on his way to go curse Israel. And so finally, uh, the Lord opens Balaam's donkey's mouth and the donkey turns around and looks at Balaam and says, what's your problem? Why do you keep beating me? To which Balaam replies, a talking donkey. No, he doesn't. I don't understand why he doesn't have a problem with this. But he answers back to the donkey because you're being disobedient. And the donkey says, look, have I ever done this? Have I ever been disobedient to you? From the time I was little, I've always been a good donkey. And Balaam says, yeah, you're right. I mean, you're, you're a pretty reasonable donkey too. And, and the donkey says, look, the reason why this is all happening is because God sent an angel to kill you and I'm trying to save your life and all you do is beat me. God opens Balaam's eyes and, and he sees the angel and, and Balaam says, oh man, well, I'm, I'll, I'll turn around right now. And the angel says, basically, you've, gone, you've come this far already, just go, but only say what God commands you to say. So Balaam meets with uh, Balak, the king of Moab, and in verse 23, or not verse, chapter 23 and 24, Balaam goes up to curse Israel, not once, not twice, not three times, but four times he goes to try and curse Israel, and every time he offers this incredible blessing of Israel. He blesses them. Well, Balak's ticked you know he's like come on i'm i'm hiring you to curse these people and all you do is bless them in chapter 23 verse 9 balaam says for from the top of the crags i see him from the hills i behold him behold a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations in verse 21 he says that the lord god is with them and the shout of a king is among them In verse 23 and 24, Balaam prophesies about Israel, saying, There is no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. 
Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, what has God wrought? Behold, a people, as a lioness it rises up, and as a lion it itself It lifts itself. It does not lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. In chapter 24, verse 5, Balaam says, How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel. In verse 17, he says that Jacob is a, or says in verse 17, A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab, and shall break down all the sons of Sheth. Look, time and time again, Balaam goes up and blesses Israel. And he prophesies about Israel, saying things like, They're a conquering nation. He says that God is among them, and the shout of a king is within them. He calls them like a lion or a lioness that's about to devour everyone that's around him. And he prophesies about them saying that there's a scepter in Jacob or a a king who's going to rule over all the other kings, including Moab. To sort of sum it all up and to put it all in, in one really great phrase, the first one I read in chapter 23, verse 9, Balaam says that he sees Israel a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. Balaam's saying, Israel is completely set apart to God. They're holy, they're perfect, they're a righteous and just nation. They've got it all together. Israel shall prosper all the days of its life is basically what Balaam is prophesying about Israel. What a great picture we see. Isn't that awesome? Isn't Israel doing great? I mean, not too long ago, They were complainers. They were grumblers. They were, because of their grumbling, because of their complaining, because of their disbelief in God, because they chose not to uh, draw near God, because they chose not to trust in him, they've been sentenced to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Look, it seems like they've had this great turnaround. Balaam is prophesying all these amazing things that happen and are happening to them. But things aren't always what they might seem. Things aren't always what they might seem. And listen, even though it seems like Israel has it all together, the reality is, as we're going to see in chapter 5, they don't. But listen, the same thing is true of us as Christians. The same thing is true of us as Christians. So often, so often, we appear like we have it all together. Listen, other people in the world or even other Christians may be looking at you right now in your life and saying, man, you've surely gotten it all together. God is blessing you. God is, God is in the midst of you. And, and man, the, the cry of the king is in your heart. All the, the giants that are in your life, you're slaying them. You're just taking them out for the kingdom. You're doing great things. You're making great strides for the kingdom of God. You're doing radical things in your life. You, my friend, are a person set apart to God. You are righteous and holy, and man, you've got it all together. But the reality is, that may be how people see you from the mountaintop as they're looking down, as Balaam was looking down at Israel. But when we get closer, we see that things aren't always as they appear. Chapter 25, verse 1. While living, or while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. Whoa! What? I thought Israel was this great nation set apart. I thought it was a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. I thought Israel was that God was with them and that the shout of a king was among them. I thought they were this great nation that nothing could stop them, that no divination, no enchantment, no thing could stop Israel. Nothing could get in the way of their relationship with God. I thought they were doing such great things. Uh, Don't worry, it's a Bible study. (laughs) We're not going to bite. I thought they were doing all these great things. 
But we see in chapter 25, verse 1, things weren't what they appeared to be. While they were still there living in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. What happened? What happened? Well, we see in verse 31 that Balak was really bummed at Balaam because Balaam couldn't curse Israel. Why? He said, look, Balaam, I'd love to curse Israel for you because I'd love plenty of money. But the the reality is, is I can't curse anyone whom God has blessed. I can't reverse a blessing of God. I can't do it. But if you want to get Israel, if you want to get at them, this is what you should do. We read in chapter 31 that Balaam gives Balak this advice. Send your daughters in, send the women in, and have them make friends with and seduce the men of Israel. And once you've seduced them and and taken them as, as husbands, then use your wifely pressure over the men to get them to start coming to your church. Get them to start worshiping your gods. And once they start worshiping your gods, once they start turning their backs on God, he won't protect them anymore. He won't have this hand of blessing on them because they're turning their backs on him. And that's exactly what the Moabite and Midianite kings do. Verse 1, again, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Listen, things may look great on the outside. Things may look good to many churches, or or things may look good at many churches, many groups of Christians, many Bible studies, many individual Christians, things may look great on the outside. And you may have done a pretty good job of putting up a good front or a good face that you have it all together. But the reality is, is we don't. We don't have it all together. I just spent the last, you know, I don't know, before the study started and as it was going on, I spent... 10, 15 minutes in my car realizing that I don't have it all together. Admitting and confessing to God, you're right, I I suck. I don't have it all together. But a lot of times as Christians, we like to we like to think we do and we like to put up fronts that we do. And people begin to really believe that we do, but when you get closer, when you sort of zoom in, you realize that things aren't always what they appear. Israel had allowed this small sin, this small sin into their camp. What was it? Well, they started marrying women from from other nations. They started marrying women from from other people groups. What's so wrong with that? Well, God had commanded against it. Why? It's not because God is some bigot or that he's against other nations or races or anything like that. But he knew this, these other nations, these other races, they're not serving me. They're not following me. Their heart isn't after me. And so as you intermarry with them, what's going to end up happening is they're going to drag you down, which is why we see in the new Testament, we see it very clear. Paul makes it painfully obvious in, in Corinthians to not be unequally yoked with non-believers. Don't be unequally yoked with non-believers. And in fact, Paul draws on this and he says, what fellowship does God have with Baal? That's what's happening here. These Israelite men, a few of them have taken these Moabite and these Midianite wives. And it's begun to infect the entire camp. That's something I want to make really clear about sin. Because again, you see, like I've already said, it appears that we have everything good on the outside, but we allow a little bit of sin into our lives. We allow a little bit of compromise in. And what's the lie that we tell ourselves? This doesn't affect anyone else. This doesn't really affect anyone else but me. And if I allow this little bit of compromise in, I mean, what's the big deal? What's the worst that could happen? Who's it going to affect? 
I'm only hurting myself if it is even hurting me. But the reality is, is that's not the case. You see these Moabite, these Midianite women start coming in and they start mingling with the, the men of Israel and one of them makes a compromise and, and takes them as, takes one of these Moabite or Midianite women as his wife. And then his buddy says, oh, well, fire and brimstone didn't come down, so I guess it's okay for me to do that too. Listen, it's not that we see in Scripture that one or two Israelite men began to whore with the, with the daughters of Moab. But it says there in verse 1 that the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. So Israel, verse 3, yoked himself to Baal of Peor. Listen, here's the point I'm trying to make. So often we'd like to convince ourselves that our sin only affects us. But that's not true. That's not true. Don't you know that a little bit of leaven leavens the whole loaf? If you let a little bit of sin in, not only is it going to affect your life, not only is it going to affect your heart, not only is it going to infect the rest of your life, but it's going to begin to affect and infect others. Listen, sin is contagious. Sin's a very contagious disease. It's a malignant cancer, and it spreads throughout your entire body, and it spreads throughout the entire body of Christ. Sin is malignant. Sin is malignant. Now listen, not only is it affecting and infecting you and everyone else around you, but it affects and infects the rest of your life as well. You see, it starts... Whoa, whoa. That was awkward. (laughs) Kind of scared me. Woke me up. Good morning. (laughs) Listen, it infects the rest of your life as well. It started off with a small compromise. Well, I've never seen a a Moabite or a Midianite woman before, and they're a lot prettier than the girls I have back home. So I'm going to marry one of these women and, uh, you know, engage in in relations in that way. And so everyone starts doing it. What happens from there? Do they all live happily ever after? No. It's like I said before, the the woman marries the, the Israelite man, the Moabite or the Midianite woman marries the Israelite man, and she says, hey, come to my church. And so he says, okay. Because, again, what, what's this whole thing based on for these Israelite men? Well, it says that in the ESV, it puts it pretty bluntly. There in verse 1, that the people of Israel began to whore with the daughters of Moab. So these girls are holding sex over these Israelite men holding it over their heads and saying, come to church with me or I'm going to shut off the supply in a sense. And so the, these Israelite men say, yeah, sure. Absolutely. Let's go to your church. Let's go worship, uh, in the heights and the high places. Let's go worship Baal. Let's go worship Baal of Peor. I mean, what's it going to hurt, right? And so they go and they worship Baal. And all of a sudden we don't just have promiscuity. We don't just have intermarrying with these other races. Now all of a sudden we have idolatry, which by the way, in case you forgot, is public enemy number one, or more to the point, it's gospel enemy number one, is idolatry. It's the first commandment. It's the most important commandment to God. You shall have no other gods before me. You know, it's interesting. There's been studies that have done in the last 10 years or so, and they've gone out, people have gone out and done this study, taken this poll, where they had people rank the importance of the Ten Commandments. By a large majority, people put thou shalt not murder at the top of the list as the most important of the Ten Commandments or the most important commandment in the Bible is thou shalt not murder. Shortly after that was, don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't 
dishonor your parents. And the last thing on the list was you shall have no other gods before me. Why? Because we as a people have elevated our interaction and our relationship to others above our relationship to God. Remember, we're studying the whole of Scripture through the lens of the two greatest commandments. Is the first commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself? No. The first commandment, the greatest commandment, according to Jesus, is that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's the greatest commandment. That everything that you are, everything that you do, everything you say, everything you want to be, everything you aspire for, everything that drives you would be your love for God. But the reality is, is with the children of Israel, they had forgotten that. They had forgotten that the most important thing that they could do is love God and be near Him and to look to Him and obey Him. And they began to do what seemed best to them and what seemed best for them. Understand, worshiping Baal was a pretty prosperous thing. Marrying these Moabite and these Midianite women was politically... It was politically a good thing for them. If you marry these daughters of Midianite and these daughters of Moab, when it comes time for you to inherit the land of Canaan, you're going to have peace, right? You're going to have peace because you're intermarried and, you know, oh, well, the the princess of Moab is married to this very high-ranking person in Israel. And so you guys aren't going to war with each other because you're allies now because of marriage. And so it was a political move, first of all. Not only was it a political move and was it politically, uh, I guess, uh, beneficial to them. That's the word I was trying to think of. It was politically beneficial to them. But it was also uh, physically beneficial to them because Baal worship was closely associated with uh, fertility and you know, having a, a good family and having, you know, really great interaction and relationship with each other. Baal worship was all centered around that. And so ultimately, they were making decisions based on what seemed like it would work out best to them and work out best relationally with each other rather than what was best in their relationship with God. Listen. Sin is infectious not only within the people, but it's infectious within the the rest of our body. If we allow a little bit of sin in our life, if we start making decisions and saying things like, you know what, it's more beneficial for me to uh, have this business relationship. Yeah, this person isn't a Christian and they have really terrible business practices, but it's better for me to have this relationship with them. It'll make my business, my uh, career stronger if I work for this person or work with this person. And so I'm just going to put aside uh, my relationship with God. And even though it's going to damage my relationship with God, and even though it's going to be something that causes uh, a foothold to be in my heart for the enemy to just rip me off, I'm going to allow this to happen. It, it's better for me in the long run. You know, it's probably not a good thing for me to associate with this person who constantly cheats on their, their tests and whatnot, but man, they, they sure do get the right answers. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put myself in their study group uh, because it's going to get me an A in the class. And that's ultimately what I need to, to continue on and to uh, get my degree so I can get a great career. Yeah, you know what? This is sort of following down this career path taking this job, it's not really what God has called me to, and I know it's sort of the opposite of what God has called me to, but it's going to make me more money so I can be a better provider and have a more secure family life, a more secure and more stable family. Listen, when we allow these little compromises into our life, it ends up spreading to the rest of our body. It ends up spreading to the rest of our life like cancer. It hits the heart, hits the bloodstream, and just goes throughout the rest of your body. For Israel, it just started with sex, and it ended with idolatry. 
the greatest sin they could ever possibly commit, turning their back on God. Listen, when you allow little compromise of sin into your life, it will quickly spread throughout the rest of your body and begin to affect and infect everyone else around you. Your friends start to be dragged down by you, especially later on one day when you have a wife and children or a husband and children. And you allow yourself to really turn your back on God. What ends up happening is you start dragging down your your spouse and your kids with you. They follow suit. Listen, sin doesn't just affect you and it doesn't just affect one small part of your life. As as people, rather, we like to believe that we can compartmentalize things. We like to think that we can section off different parts of our life. This is my spiritual life. This is my school or work or career life. This is my social life. This is my family life. And we think that we can compartmentalize ourselves. And if one of these areas gets a little bit flooded, it's okay because we have all these other areas secure and locked down. You know who else thought that would work? The Titanic. Not even God could sink this ship. Why? Because we have the the first thing that no one else has ever done before in a ship. We have these compartments, right? And if the, the hull is breached in one area, we can just shut down this compartment and it'll only fill that compartment and it's okay. The rest of the ship will still float. Wrong. Wrong. It, the ship sunk. Multiple compartments were breached and that's what happens with sin. You can't compartmentalize your life. It doesn't work. Every single area will be affected. And that's what Israel is is experiencing. They allowed a little bit of compromise into their life. And what happened is it infected the entire rest of their being. It caused them to turn their back on God. And it's not like it was just one or two people. But it was the entire camp, the entire uh, people of Israel were all affected and infected by this sin. Verse 4. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. Verse 5, and Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. What happened? The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and a plague broke out. And Israel, the people of Israel are literally dropping like flies. We see in Corinthians, Paul talks about this this particular instance. And he makes the point that 23,000 died in one day. In a day, 23,000 were killed by this plague. The anger of the Lord is burning against against Israel. And God tells Moses, take all the leaders, okay, You remember those leaders that I had you establish over each of the tribes? Take every single one of them and put them to death and and hang them out in the sun naked so that everyone can see them and see the result of sin. That the wages of sin is what? Death. And so what does Moses command to be done? Does he command that the leaders be held responsible the leaders who should have known better and who should have put a stop to this sin in the, in the entire people of Israel? Does Moses command that the leaders be killed? No, Moses commands that a lesser punishment be exacted. Moses commands that the people who have committed this sin be put to death. That's not what God asked for. God didn't say put to death those who committed this sin. God said put to death the leaders. But what's worse, not only does Moses command a punishment to be exacted other than what God had commanded, but we never read that it was carried out. We never even read that it was carried out. The next scene that we see in verse six is we're going to read. What do we see? We find Moses and the whole leaders of Israel at the tabernacle crying. They're paralyzed with 
indecision. They're paralyzed with inactivity. What does Moses do? As the people of Israel are dropping like flies, they're dying all around him because of this sin that they've allowed to infect their lives and infect the entire people of Israel. What does Moses do? Nothing. Nothing. He sits there crying. He sits there crying. Verse 6. We'll see what happens. Listen. When we allow sin to go unchecked in our lives. So we have sin that is now come in a small bit of compromise that is infected and affected the entire life of one Israelite person, then two, then three, then four, then 20, then a hundred, then the entire camp of the people of Israel. It has infected every single person, affected every single person in the camp. They're all dying as a result. And Moses doesn't carry out the the punishment that God has required. And so what happens when sin goes unchecked in our life? Well, verse 6, Behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman into his family. In the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. So what happens? Sin is going on unchecked in the life of Israel, in the lives of these individual people. And so what does this man do? This man goes and he looks around and he sees, well, the death sentence isn't being uh, taken seriously by the leadership. They're not doing anything about it. So I'm going to jump on the bandwagon and I'm going to take this woman. I'm going to grab her. I'm going to take her right in front of the tent of meeting, right in front of the tabernacle, right in front of church, in a sense. I'm going to take her into my tent. I'm going to sleep with her. I'm going to parade her around before Moses and all the leaders so that they can see what I'm going to do. And that's what this man does. Listen, when we allow sin, a little bit of sin, a little bit of compromise into our life, it infects and it affects our entire life. Then it begins to affect and infect everyone else's life around us. And when we allow it to go unchecked, our sin becomes more and more and more flagrant. We don't even bother hiding our sin anymore. We don't even bother putting up those walls, that facade that I was talking about earlier, that we've got it all together. We don't even bother going there anymore, and our sin just becomes completely obvious. We don't even care. In fact, in some instances, we're proud of our sin. We're proud of it. Yeah, you know, I mean, it was pretty, it was pretty funny. I was, uh, the other day, I was... Yeah, I was talking to this guy and I totally, I totally misrepresented the truth. I totally lied and I totally suckered him into giving me more money for this uh, car than, you know, than, than I deserved and that the car was worth. It was pretty funny. Yeah, you know, it's not even really a big deal anymore. I'm, uh, I'm a Christian, but I, I don't really care if I just go out and get hammered. Who cares? Yeah, I, I do whatever I want. I have a liberty in Christ. We become like a friend of mine who I used to work with at C28. And this guy, uh, who I really got to know at work there, you know, I, I called him out on just how he seemed to interact with his girlfriend when she was in the store. Like she'd come in the store and he would, they would sort of, I don't know, it was just weird, you know? And so I called him out on it one day, and I was like, you know, you, is everything cool with you and your girlfriend? I mean, you, you, you kind of act inappropriately with her when she's in the store. And, you know, I mean, this is obviously a Christian store, and you're obviously a Christian brother. And he was just like, yeah, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm sleeping with her. And he just didn't care. He had allowed sin to go so long unchecked in his life that he didn't even care anymore. And listen, what happens when we allow sin to go unchecked in our life is we begin to not even be affected by it. We don't even care. Our conscience doesn't even convict us anymore of that sin. We commit it and it's like, who cares? 
not only are we okay with it in ourselves and we're not convicted by it anymore and it doesn't cut us to the heart, but we don't really even care if other people know about it. We begin to openly rebel against God. And that's what this man is doing. And that's what Israel had come to. They had come to a place where they had allowed sin to become so unchecked in their life that it had become flagrantly obvious, flying in the face of God. Before I go on, there's one other thing that I want to talk about with sin, and it's this. The people of Israel have gone, they've chased after these Moabite and these Midianite wives. They've whored after them, as it says there in in the text in the ESV. They've prostituted themselves out. They've taken these wives in. They've disobeyed God. They've allowed themselves to become complete idolaters, turning their backs on God. Why? Well, again, really ultimately getting back to it, why did they do it? Well, I talked about two reasons. They did it so that they could have peace, right? So that they could have peace with Midian. And they did it so that they could be blessed and prosper, right? Because Baal worship was surrounded with prosperity. What ended up happening? Well, as we're going to see later in Numbers, forever, from this point on, there is enmity between Israel and Midian. Forever, from this point on, they will always be enemies. So they didn't have peace, but they made an enemy out of it. Only conflict was developed out of it. They did it for prosperity. And what happened? Far from that. Plague is what came upon them. Listen, so often with sin, sin is portrayed to be one thing. And all it ends up giving us is another. Sin is tempting and it's portrayed to be uh, life-giving and life-promoting. You know, it's, it's a great thing and it'll make your life better. And in reality, all it will make your life is worse. Sin is portrayed to be something that will give you meaning and purpose and, and love. And all it'll end up leaving you with is emptiness and hopelessness and despair. Sin is portrayed as being something that will bring you prosperity and wealth, and all it will bring you is hardship and pain. Listen, so often, family, we allow ourselves to be tempted by sin because we believe the enemy's lie that it's going to be something that will benefit us. And in reality, all sin will ever do is destroy The wages of sin is death, not because God says so, but because that's the nature of sin. All sin brings is death. It doesn't bring joy. It doesn't bring peace. It doesn't bring prosperity. It doesn't bring ease of life. It doesn't bring happiness. All sin brings is death. But again, Israel has allowed sin to come in and affect and infect their life. It's gone out, it's affected and infected the entire people of Israel. They've allowed it to go unchecked so long that it's just become flagrant and obvious. They don't even care about sin anymore. And so what happens? Verse 7. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. And the plague, of, of, uh, the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. Those who died by the plague were 24,000. 24,000 people had to die. Before what? before a man would finally stand up for God. Phineas, Aaron's grandson, takes up a spear 
and so moved by the sin of this man, walks into the tent and stabs him through, through his abdomen and into hers, and in one thrust kills them both. This man, Phineas, finally takes sin seriously. Deathly seriously. Why? Sin's deathly serious. Sin is deathly serious. And Phineas takes up the spear, walks into the tent, and kills them both. What do you think God thinks about that? What do you think God has to say about that? Well, let's read on before we talk about it anymore. In verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. Same thing. Same thing. Um, Yeah, it's the same thing. Jealous or zealous. Um, again, the, the purpose, or, and some translations put things a little bit differently, but it's to say the same thing. What did God have to say about this? As Ili, or pardon me, as the son of Eleazar Phineas takes up a spear, he sees Moses and his dad Eleazar. He sees all the other priests, all the other leaders of the people of Israel, all of the leaders who should have been put to death for for allowing this sin to continue in the camp. All of them are sitting paralyzed, gripped by inaction. They're sitting there around the tabernacle just crying. He sees all of his brothers and sisters being killed by this sin. And so what does he do? He takes up a spear, he runs in, and zealous... For God's name, for his glory, he goes in and he pierces sin. He kills sin. Listen, there's something else really important about sin that I need to point out. Why is God talking about uh, Phineas and he's so stoked about he's saying that, yeah, Phineas, uh, I'm stoked with him. Why? Because he was jealous for my jealousy, he was jealous about the same thing I'm jealous of. What does that even mean? Listen, God is jealous for his glory. Glory is his, right? We've talked about this before. You can't give God glory because all the glory and all the universe already belongs to him. We can show his glory. We can point people to his glory. We can... Let people know that anything that good in us, that's good in us is a result of him and his glory. But we can't give God glory. It's all his to begin with. And when we try and rob God of his glory, he's not okay with that. He's jealous over his glory. It belongs to him. And he is rightly jealous over his glory. How many people would say that it's wrong for a husband to be jealous for his wife if she's having an affair? That, that's not wrong for, he, for him to be jealous over his wife because, I mean, Scripture makes it clear. She's his and he's hers. That, that's how it is. And so for him to be jealous over his wife if she's going off and having an affair, no one would count it against him that he's jealous and that he wants her for himself and only to be his. No one would have a problem with that. In the same way, we as Christians are the bride of Christ. We as Christians are the bride of Christ. When we, we belong to him, when we whore ourselves out, prostitute ourselves out, he gets jealous. Glory belongs to God. And when we try and rob it, or when other people try and rob it, or diminish, or take away from God's glory, he gets jealous. 
And rightly so. And listen, this is so important about sin. Sin fundamentally robs God of his glory. Sin fundamentally robs God of his glory. Do we understand that? When we sin, we don't show people God's glory. Does that make sense? So often we don't think about it that way. Again, we think about sin only affecting us, only infecting us. But really, ultimately, what it does is it robs God of his glory. And that's what this man, this Israelite man, taking this Midianite woman into his tent to sleep with her in front of everyone. He's saying that God isn't glorious. His sin is saying to all the people of Israel, to all the people of Midian, to all the people of Moab, and all the people of the world, that God is not glorious. That he's not worthy of my obedience. He's not worthy of my praise. He's not worthy of my worship. I am. I'm worthy of praise. I'm worthy of worship. I'm worthy of obedience. I'm going to obey myself, my flesh, whatever I want to do. This person is worthy of worship. This person is worthy of of my life, but God is not. And so Phineas, being jealous with God for God's glory, goes and he kills sin. When Phineas does this, what happens? God says that he turns back his wrath from Israel. One simple act. Remember, it's not like just this guy was the only one fooling around with Midianite and Moabite women disobeying God. It was all of Israel. But when one man makes a stand for God's glory, when one man is zealous for God's name, when one person is jealous as as God is jealous and goes in and makes a stand and kills sin in the camp of Israel God's wrath is averted it's turned back listen Christian if you're here today and on the outside everything appears like you've got it all together like Balaam prophesying standing on the mountaintop looking down over Israel and prophesying over them saying that God is with them and the the shout of a king is, is in their heart. They're like a lion or a lioness that's about to just take out its enemies. They're doing great things for God and in fact, you are a, people are saying about you that you're a person who's set apart before God. Not counting yourself among the rest of the world, but righteous and holy. Set apart to God. You appear like you have it all together, but listen, you're allowing a little bit of sin to creep into your heart, to creep into your life. For Israel, it was sex. For you, it could be greed, lying. You could be stealing from your workplace. You could be going off and living a life of just debauchery, partying, Alcohol, drug use, and abuse could not even be that big. You know, those are all pretty marquee sins. Could be something really small. It might not even be a sin of commission, as we'd call it, but a sin of omission. That you're not obeying the Lord, that you're not taking opportunities to, uh, to obey Him, to, to preach the gospel, to follow after... Ho- to follow hard after him, to spend time in his word, to spend time in prayer, to share your faith. You're not making a stand in your workplace. You're not making a stand in your, in your school. You're allowing a little sin into your life. Listen, I'm telling you, not just standing on scripture, but standing on a short life, albeit, but a life of experience. A little bit of sin goes a long way. Sin, infect, sin affects and infects not just one compartment or aspect of your life, but it will quickly spread to the rest of your life. 
And if you leave it unchecked like Moses did, not doing anything about it, saying with lip service, yeah, you know, I need to to do something about this and I need to punish this area of my life, but never following through with it. Listen, plague is bound to break out. Why? God chastises those whom he loves. Plague's bound to break out. So what is God looking for in your life? Sin is beginning to wrap vines around your heart and really have a root in your life. What's God asking for you to do? Run a spear through it. Run a spear through it. As John Owen once said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Deal with sin zealously like Phineas did. Run a spear through it. Don't allow it to live any longer. Show no partiality about it. Just kill it. I don't care what sin it is. I don't care how big, how small, how influential it might be now. Kill sin in your life or it'll kill you. It'll kill you. What was the result of Phineas's obedience? Peace with God. God was stoked and he was blessed by him. And he made a covenant with Phineas that every priest, every high priest from then on would come through his line because he was zealous or jealous for God. In the same way that God was jealous over his own people, over his own glory. Listen, there's another aspect that I want to quickly touch on here about this chapter. Listen, there's one other aspect about this story that I want to briefly touch on before we wrap our time up together. And it's this. Like I said, sin not only infects and affects your whole life, but it will infect and affect the entire body of Christ. And so I challenge you to be a Phineas. I challenge you to be a Phineas, to be killing sin. Listen, I'm not saying that you need to be a sin sniffer, a Pharisee who's constantly calling people out for their sin and, you know, judging people or condemning them or even trying to convict people of sin. I'm not saying that by any means. But when you're in a circle of believers and sin has made its way into that circle and it is now infected everyone there, Be a Phineas and make a stand for God, killing that sin. Killing that sin. Here's what I'm saying. Make a stand for God. Stand up for the Lord. Stand up for what's right. Be militant about it. Phineas was serious here. He wasn't joking around. He didn't just walk in and say, "Um, excuse me, can you just like stop it? Because this isn't right. No, he walked in with a spear and killed them both. He dealt with sin seriously because sin is serious. And so in the same way, family, we need to deal with sin not only in our personal lives, but in the lives of our family as well. Again, this doesn't give you a license to be a Pharisee, to be legalistic, to be a sin sniffer, to invade people's privacy and always try and point out the flaws, trying to point out the the speck in their eye while you have a log in your own. I'm not saying that. But graciously and in love, standing on God's word and resting in, in Christ, we can make stands in each other's lives about sin. We can lovingly call one another out. We can lovingly pierce each other through the heart. Killing sin in one another's lives. How does that happen? Well, first of all, it happens prayerfully. It happens prayerfully. Second of all, it happens privately. This isn't something that you do on Facebook. Posted on their wall. This isn't something that you do in front of everyone. And listen, it's not something that you go and talk to other people about. 
This is how we as Christians love to gossip. Brothers, we need to, we need to pray right now. We need to pray for Isaac, um, you know, because he's, he's sleeping with his girlfriend again. Yeah, I know. It's, it's sad. And be sure to, you know, let everyone know to be praying for him, you know, about this sin that's in his life. Girls, we need to come together. We need to pray for Susie uh, because, you know, she's just developed this really, really bad gambling habit. And uh, I know it's sad, isn't it? It's so terrible. Um, so let's pray for Susie. You know, let's just pray for her, you know. And we don't, we don't have to do it now. Just just go and, and remember her in your prayers. Pray for Susie, you know, with her gambling addiction. Being a Phineas in each other's life is something that's done privately. It's something that you go into their tent and you you deal with it with them, not with everyone else. It needs to happen prayerfully. It also needs to happen privately. But it needs to happen. It needs to happen. We need to be looking out for each other as the body of Christ. We need to be getting each other's backs. And when we allow ourselves to be wrapped up in sin, we need to be able to call each other out and be a Phineas and be able to call out sin and encourage and exhort and if necessary, rebuke one another in Christ and in love. We need to be Phineas's or else sin is going to go left unchecked in our lives and in our churches and it's going to become more and more obvious, more and more flagrant and more and more offensive to God. But if you're here tonight and there's something that God has pricked your heart about, there's a sin that you've allowed to crawl and creep into your life and wrap itself around your heart and begin to infect and affect the rest of your life and you can feel it happening. You can feel that cancer spreading and you can feel the way that it changes the way that you interact with others. That you're beginning to possibly drag them down or pull them into your sin. You recognize this happening, this is happening and you don't want it to go on any longer. Be a Phineas. Deal with sin seriously and stab it through the heart. I want to give us an opportunity to do that now. So what we're going to do is for, I don't know, 30 seconds or so. I want you to just quietly talk to the Lord. And do it out loud. Um, First of all, so that you don't get distracted. And also just so that you really have that sense that, that you're really speaking to God. You're talking with him here. So do it out loud, but not so loud that the person next to you can hear it. And for the next 20 or 30 seconds, I want you to just talk to the Lord about that issue. That little thing, that little seed, that little root that's, that you've allowed into your heart, into your life. That's beginning to affect and infect your entire life. I'm going to go, I'm going to do the same. Let's talk to the Lord about this. Amen. Let's deal with this. Let's be Phineas's. And let's be killing sin before it kills us. Father, I pray that in this time as we go and as we just talk to you, God, help us to be honest with ourselves, to examine ourselves. And God, I pray that you would search us and and know us and show us if there's anything wicked in us, God, that we would be able to just lay it before you now, that we would be able to be honest with you about it and confess our sin to you, God. You've told us that if we confess our sin, you're faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from it. And so, God, I pray that that's what you do. That you'd not only forgive us of this sin, but God, God that you'd remove it. As we go now and, and we just talk with you, God, about these things individually, hear our prayer. King, enough is enough. We don't want to carry this anymore. We don't want to do this anymore. We don't want to live like this anymore. 
We don't want sin to go unchecked in our life any longer. So Jesus, please run us through the heart. Convict us of our sin so that we could turn from it, repent of it, and Jesus never go back to it. God, I pray that that we would be completely dependent on you. No longer making decisions and allowing things into our life because they are easy or comfortable or make sense or, or will prosper us. But God, that we would only do what pleases you. That we'd only want you. That we'd only chase after you. And that we would only obey you, God. We long for you and nothing else, Jesus. You're all that we want. You're all that we need. And so you get it all, Lord. All of our life, all of our desires, all of our passions and pursuits and aspirations. God, all our day, all our night. You get everything. We love you. It's in your precious son's name we pray. The Lord bless you and keep you. This week, may God cause his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. And the Lord lift up his countenance to you tonight and give you peace. I love you guys.